Hello, my name is Azelle Shiva O'Gara, and I was a panelist for Dance Education. You have such an interesting background. I was reading your bio. Tell us a little bit about where you come from and some of the things you've done, just to start us out, including some fashion choreography, which is fascinating. Okay, I'm originally from the Caribbean, but I grew up here in New York City. As you can see from my bio, I attended the High School of Performing Arts, which is now known as LaGuardia. I majored in dance, and then I went to the University of Michigan, majored in dance there, and I had a very active career as a dancer, both in dance companies and in musical theater. And I was also a uh, fashion model for many, many years. And I did dance and modeling in Europe uh, for many, 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 many years. And then my career took uh, kind of took a slight turn several years ago when I was diagnosed with a brain tumor. And that kind of changed my life, but I didn't let it stop me from dancing because I was paralyzed with the aftermath of the, the uh, surgery. And uh, I said, Zizelle, don't let that stop your life. And I uh, regained my mobility, partial mobility, like a year later, and you know, continued my life. So I went to grad school, got my um, degree in social work, and I started my dance company, ZCO Dance Project. So in the panel that I just saw that you took part in, there was a presentation at the beginning about dance education and a report that's coming out about dance education in New York City. And they showed us some interesting statistics, for example, their percentage of art education classes that are dance, theater, music, and fine arts. And they presented some other statistics. Do you have any thoughts on how dance education is taking place in New York and what you think should be done to improve well, some of these statistics? Well, dance education needs to, um, you know, it's out there. I mean, it, it, it is growing, but it needs to excel even more, and that's what we're trying to do. I'm actually even trying to be more inclusive with dancers with disabilities, and I'm working with Dance NYC. I'm on the Disability Task Force trying to implement more services for students with disabilities and bringing dance more into the public school system. Excellent. <laughs> Do you have any insight on how we can work with the New York State Department of Education to integrate dance education into public schools? Well, that's a good question. Yeah. Well, we could work collaboratively with the city and the state. You know, that would be a good way to, to work together. We could get things done. Yeah, that sounds great. Collaboration always leads to change yes. from one social worker to another. Yes. Absolutely. Thank you so much for your time and for your participation on the panel. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, my name is Charlene Blake, and I'm a dance educator in New York City. So what did you think was interesting about the session you just attended? Okay, so for me, the most important thing has to do with collaboration and not giving up. Those are the two things that actually really stood out for me the most. This idea that Artists can't do this alone, and it's really important to collaborate, one, with other artists, with arts organizations, dance educators that are working in both either places, and really building those partnerships are key, 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 as well as do not give up. I think that a lot of young teachers, when they come against these obstacles, they are very fearful, like, you know what, I can't do this anymore, it's too hard. No, it's not too hard. If you keep at it and keep at it and keep at it and collaborate, you can get through it.
That's interesting. Uh, one thing that came up quite a bit in the session was this idea of collaboration. I think a few people pointed out that there should be better collaboration between educators and dance teachers or dance artists, kind of people who define themselves in one category or another. What has your experience been with that? And I guess, how can that collaboration happen? How is it not happening? And how should it be happening? I think one of the things is that I think dance educators and dance artists need to actually think of themselves as both. So if you're a dance educator, you are an artist. If you're a dance artist, you are an educator. And I think that we need to start reframing the thinking of how we use those words. And if we begin to do that, a lot of change can begin to happen. That's my big takeaway on that. And as a dance educator, just tell us a little bit about what you do and how you have had to overcome the idea of maybe giving up um, <laughs> or I guess how it's benefited you to not give up over time. Yeah, I've been doing this for a really long time. I teach in the public school system. I've been doing it for 25 plus years. I teach predominantly high school students. But the thing is, I've had opportunities to teach across the board. So I've taught kids who are teenage and pregnant. I've taught kids who are special ed. I've taught elderly. And so for me, the not giving up has to do with seeing the transformation when people have dance in their lives. That's what makes me keep doing this. Wow. Very, very interesting. Thank you. That's great. Thank you so much. Thank you. My name is Mark Brew, and I'm the newly appointed artistic director of Axis Dance Company. Oh, excellent. And tell us a little bit about what you thought about the panel discussion that you just attended. It was really an eye-opener for me, um, obviously coming into my new position and now relocating to America, to really learn about the dance education scene here in America, New York in particular. Um, it seems like there's been lots of hard work from years up till now and um, some exciting changes have happened within the dance and education uh, system. Of course, hearing you know all the exciting ideas of ways to move it forward, but it really seems it's a cohesive group of really obviously passionate and committed artists and educators and people wanting to make that change in the field and help it grow and, and also there's so much evidence about the benefits of dance and education uh, that you know it's just important to have more and more and more. Where are you coming from and can you give us a sense of the comparison contrast between support for dance education where you're from and what you're seeing here? Uh, the last 17 years I've been living and working in the UK with my own company Mark Brew Company. I do a lot of work in education Dance is a part of the curriculum in the UK. Yeah, yeah, the majority of schools. So, um, and they can study dance as a, within high school um, as part of their A levels. It's called. Uh, it'd be great to see here in America that dance is also a part of the curriculum, not an added extra for people to be able to train, not have to go to specialised schools. Also, as a dancer with a disability, I think it's really important to train the teachers and the dance educators to be able to ensure that they teach inclusively, so every child has access to be able to dance. And would you mind telling us a little bit about your experience as a dancer with a disability? How did you get into dance and how did your educators help you get in get into the world of dance? Yeah, I um, I trained as a non-disabled dancer in Australia and I went through a very traditional Australian Ballet School, Australian Ballet Company and then acquired my disability from a car accident uh, 24 years ago. But I had to refine my own pathway back into dance because there wasn't the opportunities there. So through my work, my advocacy work as a dancer with disability, is really about creating those opportunities and pathways for disabled children, youth, and artists who want to actually have a profession in dance. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks for talking to us. My name is Jamie Schleifer. I am a retired public school hip hop dance teacher from Brooklyn. 
And so I come here to represent Dance Parade, which is May 20th. And it's the um, 10,000 dancers and over 82 dance styles represented. And I come here to mix and mingle with other dance uh, experts and teachers as well. I went to, of course, the workshop on education and dance education. So I have a lot of, of opinions about how, how to do that and, and get dance in the schools as well. And uh, one of the things they mentioned was the, to change the hearts and minds of people. One of the things that they did not touch upon is the present uh, administration president elect, yes, um, he shall remain nameless, and all the cuts and uh, funding and so on, that's, that's going to be happening. So I'm concerned about that. But I feel that if a, if a principal wants dance in their school, they will find a way of getting it, as my principals did, uh, and built two dance studios because of my dance program. I was teaching 27 years in the public school system, and from the middle school that I taught in Flatbush, a studio was built, and then one in Brighton Beach also was built because the principals wanted dance and knew how the arts are a great supplement for the academic subjects mm -hmm. and how we can work together to to create the full student, the complete student. So this is interesting. I understand that many principals are not as good at integrating dance, and I think some of the reasons are being overwhelmed. So many people in schools have so much on their plate. I'm sure there are other reasons. Have you encountered that, and can you speak to maybe what some of the things are, the elements are that make that help a principal be motivated or help a principal to actually take the steps they need to take to integrate dance in the school? Well, I know for a fact that my principal at, in Brighton Beach uh, was not an arts person, and I, and I convinced her how most of our students are immigrants. And so the art speaks, speaks to that. You know, I, I'm a student who was not very good in academics, and the arts saved me. You know, and if you can't reach a child through reading and writing, then you most definitely can reach them through dance or music or art. And, and then you find that hook to, to, um, to catch that student and then go from there in terms of the academics. I know there's a problem with space, and oh, you spoke of overwhelmed teachers, which is a really big thing. Before it was teaching to the test, so if it wasn't on the test, the, we didn't have time for it. So we should have dance tests. Uh, no, 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 no dance tests. No, because they they actually want to go that way. They started doing that in terms of blueprint of the arts and and uh, core curriculum and things of that nature, and. I think that's not the right way to go either, <laughs> but, it, but they do it in terms of validating us, and that's really why for other people to understand that the arts are important, sometimes they need the statistics and they need the data rather than just saying it benefits because spiritually and the heart and the mind and all the, all the things that we know that can't be measured written yeah. yeah but you know that it's happening you know this is so interesting because it, it sounds like you also found the hook for the principal in some cases to get them on board and I love the idea of dance not relying on language so for immigrant communities where maybe they're still learning English for example and it might be harder taking academic classes in English dance is a way for people to still learn and and connect and gain valuable skills without it relying on spoken language. So, I mean, just in terms of not only does she have dance, this particular principal, PS 253, Brighton Beach, but she incorporated uh, dance, theater, and music 
And then the shows that are, are done, the children help write them and choose the music, and then they have to memorize words. So it, it's all connected in the arts. They're learning all those other things. And I mean, this has been known since I've been studying it for over 50 years, you know, so it's nothing new. It's just a question of changing the minds of the principals and you don't need the money, although that helps, you know. You don't need the space, but you, that often helps. I mean, I've taught in hallways and classrooms and closets and, you know, because they just didn't have the space to begin with. But if the principal is on board, they'll find you a space, you know, they'll find you a classroom and, yeah, and they'll help you push the chairs away and all those, all those things as well. But it really is, it starts from the top. If the, if the principal is on board... Uh, and is supportive, then, then the arts program will succeed in the school, definitely. And uh, I have to say, I love that you're involved in Dance Parade. We actually interviewed Greg Miller last year. Um, I'll send you the link to that. And I went to Dance Parade for the first time. I hadn't known about it. I couldn't believe as a dancer I didn't know about it. And I just loved how it had so many different types of dance and cultures represented. And I feel like that has some tie-in with education, too, and appealing to maybe the different cultural neighborhoods in New York and just expanding the kind of, or maybe our definition of dance and what we can teach. So that's great. Yeah. And if you have any thoughts based on your, you know, past with education and then bringing that together with Dance Parade. Oh, yeah. I mean, I'm part of the community outreach committee. And that was one of my things. I wanted to incorporate more public schools into into the Dance Parade because, like you said, they didn't know about it. And also they're overwhelmed with their own shows. But, it's, but uh, as part of the core curriculum, it does link up everything that they're teaching in the schools in terms of uh, exposing the children to different styles of dance, to cultures, the history, the spectacle of it all. And so it really encompasses uh, everything that they're supposed to be teaching in the schools. So for them to tell their students about it, it would definitely be a, a great uh, addition to whatever they're doing in the classroom. Very cool. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me. Thank you, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Okay, I'm Diane Jacobowitz, the founder and executive director of DanceWave, and I went to the Dance Education, the Designing the Future of Dance Education panel, and I also went to the Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion on Dance Boards for a short time as well. Yeah. And you asked a, a great question, or you made a great point during the panel on education. I was there. Uh, tell us a little bit about your thoughts on what we need to do to enhance dance education in New York City or the U.S. Well, first of all, I just want to compliment Dance NYC. Um, that was a fantastic panel with a bunch of real amazing rock stars. I, you know, it's a, such an exciting time because of the cultural plan. And I feel very proud to be in New York City. It's kind of crazy, but um, it seems like a redundant, weird thing to say after having a life of living in New York City. But what is going on on a national level is so terrifying that I feel actually, you know, you know, the word sanctuary city is like not doesn't do it for me because when I was invited to go to the New York City hearing at City Hall the other day oh, really? and they were talking about the cultural plan, I was felt very lucky and privileged to be able to make a presentation on behalf of DanceWave, but also really in terms of the whole city's cultural plan and education. And, you know, I think it's, we're breaking open some really exciting things from what I understand. No one is really 
working on the level that we are in yeah. the city. So I, I feel like I need to say that, first of all, because, and Joan Finkelstein brought that up too, is that we mm-hmm. are actually doing a whole lot. So it's one of those measures yeah. we, where you're looking at, like, how fantastic and celebrating what we are doing that, that is not happening on a national level. Right. And that needs to be sort of said in terms of the true perspective of the issue. But at the same time, we know, both as artists, educators, and administrators, Mm -hmm. that there's so much more to be done. You know, I think we're doing a really good job of reaching out to the public schools. I think, obviously, every public school needs to have dance education. It's a journey that's on its way. It's not totally happening. It was interesting to hear on the panel how high school is not being served on the level that the middle and particularly the lower schools are happening. We at DanceWave are actually working in the high schools, but I understood and didn't know some of the reasons why it wasn't, which is that high school kids come from all over, so when they're trying to fund somebody to go into their district, they're not really... I could see where the challenges were with that. I found that interesting, too. I had not thought of that. Right, right. Um, We're also working with a school that is on the autism spectrum because we have dance therapists who work at DanceWave. So I wanted to hear a little bit more about that. Look, the panel has, like, X amount of time, and you can't talk about that. But... I do think that there are certain populations that need to be talked about right alongside everything else that we're talking about. And one is, you know, we I don't know what the figures are, a percentage of young people who have autistic, who are, who are on the autism spectrum, but they need to be served. And dance is really effective with them. I mean, almost more than, well, probably music and dance are have I, in the school we're working in, which is a high school, except okay. the kids are in their 20s because they don't graduate in time, right? And so they yeah. stay in school. And then when they do graduate, the kind of jobs that they could get are maybe, if they're lucky, a janitorial or, you know, someone taking coats or something along those lines because a lot of them are not able to get regular jobs. Right. But we've worked with kids there who, like, won't, won't talk, who go around with their hands over their ears because they feel there's too much noise and they can't function in society. And dance has an amazing effect on this. So, I mean, I think that's it's worth conversation. I know there is there is uh, panels on disability, so I'm sure that that discussion is going on. The other yeah. population that I want to hear more about that I don't hear too much about at today's event is mm-hmm. the seniors. And does DanceWave do work with yes, seniors? Yes. So there's a new city initiative that no, you know, again, I was didn't hear talk about, but it's called SUCASA. So we have the CASA program, which is the cultural after-school adventures. But mm-hmm. the SUCASA is with the Department of Aging and the Art and uh, Department of Cultural Affairs. So we just got two. I'm, I'm hoping we're going to get three SUCASAs where we're working in senior centers. So again, here's a population that is very often abandoned by their families. They may be very lonely. They don't have family around them. They may be aging. They may not have enough money. They get put in senior centers or in senior living homes where the level of help is kind of you know, humiliating. I'm saying this because I have a 92-year-old mom and I'm like dealing with this issue. But I, you know, I think what the, you know, the beauty about dance, and I think we're definitely on the track going in that direction is that it serves, it's got this ability to be a lens 
for so many other things, you know, for therapeutic and for just supporting young people in the world, growing up and having confidence and imbuing them with an understanding of who they are and feeling, you know, the ability to love their instrument, which is their body at a time when they have like rock and roll hormones going on, you know, and feeling scared about that, you know, so... I think this is exciting for me that the symposium is happening and that it's dances really happening on a a more political advocacy level. I think that is Mm -hmm. the time has come. I'm really excited and proud of that. And, you know, I think Lane and Dance NYC for kind of like really pushing it, you know, along to the next step. Thank you so much. Yeah. That was really interesting and interesting to hear about Dance Wave's initiatives. I've uh, rented space oh, at, really? through Dance Wave at okay. times. Once for a film shoot. Oh, um, I looked at it for another film shoot. So I think of it as space, but I didn't realize you had all of these initiatives as well. And that's really yes. wonderful. Yeah. So um, where can people go to learn more if they're curious about that? Uh, dancewave.org. The other exciting thing to hear is that in November of this year, we, ha- we are breaking ground on a capital project. So okay. you will have an easier time renting space at oh. Dance Wave once we have our new building which will be about three or four times the size of what we have now. And where is the new building? It's down the street from where we are. It's, I guess it's, it's downtown, but you could also call it Gowanus because it's 4th Avenue and DeGraw Street. So it's the block where Brooklyn Boulders and all those like, little hipster places are. I wonder what that neighborhood is called. No, I think you could, okay. could kind of call it Gowanus, but it's also sort of the corridor the down East. from... Yeah, so. Okay. Well, great. Thank you so much. This is welcome. Very welcome. Nice talking to you. My name is Adam Weinert. I'm a choreographer and media artist participating in the panel. And the panel that we were on was New Technologies, New Dance, New Audiences. Great. So I just saw the panel, and I have to say it was a very fascinating discussion about new technologies and dance in general, and how the two interface with each other, and what tools are available to choreographers and dancers. So many new questions were raised for me, but based on the various subjects that you talked about, what was sort of your biggest takeaway from today's discussion? Well, I'm just so thrilled that Oakley was on the panel with us, because she is just such an artist in every sense of the word, and it's so true. I mean, it's so clear in everything that she says, and so I appreciate her kind of bringing us back to what's important, which is you know, the art and the art making. I think there were a lot of great comments about what classifies as technology and how new it isn't. So that it was a panel on new technology might be kind of a misnomer. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I agree completely with Adam and, and feeling like when we actually approached the conversation, that was something that we were asking ourselves. Why new technology? Why new dance? And why new audiences? And why the word new to begin with? And I think what the conversation really led us to was sort of moving away from a more binary relationship to technology, non-technology, and just sort of thinking without universalizing media and our media culture, thinking about media specificity always, whether it's the body as a technology or virtual reality as a technology or a camera as a technology or food and ingestion as a technology, (laughs) right? Adam brought up this great example of eating hot dogs as a technology. And so I think just really working that being very specific about mediation as a form of communication beyond just an object, technical object, was a huge takeaway for me. 
absolutely, I would have to agree. That was one of my big takeaways and just not having this rigid definition of technology, which I tend to always have, but now my eyes have been opened. What might have been some new concepts or new questions that were raised for you today as a result of any audience questions or comment and feedback? It's maybe not necessarily a new question, but something that I was sort of reminded of today is this idea of technology ownership. And technology does change. And so years from now, if Facebook, for example, changes their policies and their rules, then who does own the technology and how will that always be available to the artist? That was something that I don't think I think of very often, how technology is constantly changing and all the unknowns are a little bit scary. And I, I think the reminder to stay vigilant about in this relationship uh, between dance and technology that dance doesn't become the subject or object, but rather a co-author is, is pretty vital. And you know, media culture began with a maker culture. And so the internet was this kind of activist thing to begin with. So I think your question about ownership is a large societal question. <laughs> it's very much at the forefront of my thinking when I think about politics, when I think about open access, when I think about censorship. And I think, you know, always kind of keeping at the forefront of our mind the activist and utopian beginnings of media culture. Uh, we have a very different relationship to them now, and we can problematize the utopian nature that it started with, because what we weren't thinking about then was who has access, who has a voice, who's at the table. But now that we can include those different perspectives to the conversation, I think remembering that it's not how will ownership change in the future. Ownership has already changed. And so how will it continue to change and what is our role in that? Uh, for me, was a big takeaway. But And now here's Oakley and what, she's going to... What did gonna... I say? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, they I, have, I feel like they have so much more to... Yeah, oh, not at all. ...than I do. Like, and I'm not being modest or anything, but I feel like, you know, it was so interesting to hear the woman in the wheelchair talk about a kind of integrative technology that is already a part of her everyday existence and how to find a way to build the audience around that body, her body. I found that interesting. But then I also found myself thinking, but that's still, there's still this very, this very indirect experience. Like, you know, for you, how do you go about building a, another body, right? Like to me, that suggests a detachment already, like a kind of, like a, a, I mean, but displacement is also a really critical and interesting thing, but what is it to sort of be creating a channel between your bodies and other bodies in a live space where you have no idea of how, like you can't really truly know how their bodies are composed, right? Or do, like, I don't, I don't know. I just, it was just a really interesting conversation and, um, and then talking, speaking about content and who eventually is going to own it and what happens when it's held on various platforms and do the, when those platforms become obsolete or there's ownership of that platform that makes content inaccessible because you need to ha you know what I mean? Like, I, I don't know. I found this a sense of, as an artist or as a 
someone who works in performance, there's a limit to what you can own because you're making something that's ephemeral, right? And in some ways, I'm interested in letting go of a certain type of ownership. But when we talk about this content being captured and projected and repeated, do we have to consider how we hold on to that or keep it free or, you know what I mean? Like I was just the, the, the political implications of that, the economic implications of that are really, really complicated and something I haven't thought about. And, it was, and that was, it was so great to have that come up. I mean, and what an incredible community of brilliant people, you know, which is so nice to kind of really feel you're, we're setting up a conversation, but we're already in this conversation because I can recognize people in there. I'm like, oh, I know that person's work or I've seen their work. And so, yeah. Did you have a question? I just started. <laughs> no. I just answered all of the questions without. This is perfect because overall our questions are the relationship with technology that we're always negotiating, ownership, who has the voice. These are all the fluid conversations that will continue after today. And I thank you so much for starting this conversation. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you yeah. for joining us. Thank you. Yeah, I just felt feel like the most improbable person to be having this conversation. <laughs> thank I you mean, for I'm thank gonna, you for bringing I me have into to it. Say, I want to. It's interesting. Like, oh, well, you keep saying that, but but I think the product of our conversation just now, I hope, sort of illustrated why I think you absolutely have just as much to offer to the conversation because it's not it's really and I'm really kind of curatorially and personally trying to push us as a community mm. against this like there is a technology community within the dance world and then there is the outside of that right. Right? right and I just think that if we continue to operate on that assumption it's going to really hold back what we can accomplish right. in right. you know and so is she spanking me right now? <laughs> <laughs> I, think, I am is she, I think I'm being I think I'm being chastened by someone I thought was my friend. No, no, I mean, I'm saying this only because I love you very no, much. Very and I, important. It's yeah, true, true, yeah. True. And I just think that, like, d different types of relationships, and it's like Adam said, right? Like, Adam comes to this technology stuff not as a technologist, but as someone went, who right. went to dance school and is collaborating right. maybe with you other people. Dance or school clown college. <laughs> <laughs> it's like dance schools and MoMA will not have you. <laughs> I love that. Jesus, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you all again. Abby Buell. Kevin Lau. I think it's interesting that the dance community is trying to engage with all these new technologies. And I would love to see the dance community have more of these conversations. Absolutely. And the conversations really range from ownership how we embrace new technology, what technologies do we have at our fingertips. Were there any questions that were you thought were interesting and new to you or any new concepts? Yes, uh, so my concern is about technology being obsolete and how audiences can maybe experience the way dance is integrated with technology for a brief amount of time just because if the technology becomes obsolete, then the experience is changed. That's a very interesting concept. And then what happens to that artwork itself? Exactly. It's either lost, can't be reproduced, or reproduced with a new experience for the audiences. Interesting. Anything else come up for 
both of you? One other thing I can think about is just at the end talking about dance on film and and being able to reach an audience that might not be able to come from accessibility options or things like that and the idea of live streaming performances and what that would look like. And you know, I know that's been done in theater and that's done in some places for dance, but how would that work and what would that look like and how would that help us all to reach a broader audience? Absolutely. I was thinking audience engagement, too, when you were saying that. If Dance NYC's central focus this year is that dance audiences are down by 20%, film and technology can only help build our audience even bigger. Yeah, exactly. I mean, so it's just a question of can we do that and and what will that look like, you know, with all of the different social media live options. And, you know, I know we have done live rehearsals and things like that, and it's such a great way to get people from all over the world to be able to feel connected. Great. Thank you so much. Uh, my name is Brandon Gride. I'm the Director of Government Affairs for Dance USA, and just had a breakout session on key policy issues that we are facing at the federal level that impacts the dance community and ways that Dance USA is working on those issues and opportunities for members of the dance community to engage as advocates on those issues. And I found it very helpful. I found the session very helpful. So thank you for, for doing that. Can you highlight some of the key issues that you spoke about for our listeners? Some of the big issues that we've been working on, of course, uh, centers around appropriations for the National Endowment for the Arts and other cultural agencies. Uh, also working very heavily on tax policy issues that has, could have an impact on charitable contributions for nonprofits. We are continuing to urge Congress to preserve the full scope and value of the charitable deduction for all nonprofits, not just arts organizations. And also really paying close attention to immigration issues that impacts the hiring of foreign guest artists uh, who come in as non-immigrant workers. Thank you. This might be a little separate from the talk that you gave, but do you have any predictions or an outlook in general given the current administration? I wish I did. I, I really, so much is in flux right now, and we're learning things on a weekly basis, just like everyone else. You know, trying to balance the message of, uh, I think as I said in the session, uh, between a sky is falling message, which I don't ever want to be a boy who cried wolf, with sending out messages that have a sense of urgency. And I feel like we have, it's more more in the sense of urgency portion right now than sky is falling. And we have not yet seen a budget for fiscal year 2018. We don't yet have a budget for fiscal year 2017. And so there's still time to advocate and there's still time to build relationships with lawmakers before any decisions and threats are fully underway. And how can we support your efforts in advocacy? Sure. Well, DanceUSA has a number of our issue briefs online. You can find them uh, at danceusa.org under our advocacy and visibility session under key policy issues. And that has talking points that we use at the federal level around such a wide range of issues. Everything from appropriations and tax policy and immigration, like I just mentioned, but also includes cultural exchange, arts and education, at the Department of Education, net neutrality, the use of wireless microphones for performing arts organizations. So a lot of different issues that have really uh, important talking points that we've worked with our own national partners to, to craft and update. You can take those messages, invite your lawmakers and their staff to your performances, invite them to come on tours of your theaters, to come and view 
uh, community engagement programs with students. You can go and visit your members of Congress and talk to them about what work your organizations are doing using dance to make your communities healthier. So there's a lot of different things you can do. If you, at the basic level, you know, see, sign up to get Dance USA messages on a bi-weekly basis. We always have advocacy updates in our SPIN newsletter and also sending out communications around our advocacy work so that we can help provide opportunities for people to engage. Great. Thank you so much. Yeah. And one thing I'll just highlight quickly because I found it very interesting in your session is that you mentioned when kind of advocating for your own artistic work or artistic work that arts organizations and dance companies are doing in the community, it's helpful when talking to members of Congress to not just talk about the work you're creating mm -hmm. as its own kind of good mm -hmm. for the community, but to also highlight any efforts you're making to really give back to the community or maybe ways that you're donating or additional things you might be doing through your art to help the community. And I I thought that was really interesting because that helps get through to them on maybe more of their level. Absolutely. So, yeah. So. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Well, my name's Jamie Benson. <laughs> Hi, everyone. I have coined myself, as you can see on my card, and this I may have gone a little too far with this, rebel clown choreographer slash marketing consultant. <laughs> Split personalities. I don't know. Maybe it's just a dancer thing. There's just too many things that we do and that's what I'm experiencing and hopefully people are getting something out of it before I go completely bonkers. And it's really funny because a panelist in another discussion actually referred to dance school as clown college. So there's a relationship there. There's a tie-in. Thank goodness. <laughs> You're validated. Yeah, no, I need as much of that as possible because sometimes I feel like I'm on a limb a little bit. Huh. But I guess as artists we probably all suffer from that. No matter how established we are, no matter how much I keep thinking, oh, if I just get a little more press and another grant, I'll feel like a real boy. You know what I mean? And I'm still, every time you start a new project, you're like, uh, steady, steady. Yeah. So tell us about this clown element and how that's come into play and how that's new for you. I'm or just, not, but, you know, new uh, level. No, I'm coining myself. It's like an ex everything's an experiment, right? Yeah. There's a lot of humor to my work, and I find I've been trying to... Because trying to explain what I do to people when I first meet them, I find is really difficult. And I'm a pro at like an elevator speech. But like trying to quantify quickly, dynamically, and in like an intriguing way, in a sentence, what I do is really difficult. Yeah, okay, maybe three. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've been playing around with archetypes is my point. And two archetypes that appeal to me are the rebel and the clown. So I just mushed them up in order to at least give a tone because honestly, I approach dance and my marketing persona life in very similar ways, in similar tone. You know, I like bold, brash, irreverence, that sort of thing. So I mash those together. And then the truth is, I choreograph and I do a lot of marketing for artist gigs. Mm -hmm. So how do you have to ram all that together? I don't know. So my my card is a little funny. I've I've been laughing at it all day. Maybe it's just me. <laughs> well, you're teaching us, I feel like, how to define ourselves and ram it all together, right? So Jessica went to your session earlier today and came yeah. back saying, I have like three pages of notes. I learned so much, which happened last year, too. Good. Yeah. Um, Detailed notes. I can't wait to share them. So yeah. it's important that I hear that because my MO, I admit, is like, I'm going to make sure you get your money's worth. Mm -hmm. My face is contorting in a lot of ways. But I'm like, 
I'm gonna give myself an insane time limit and an insane list of things I want you to understand. And I'm gonna try to do it all. And yeah. there's a chance I won't make it. This was like that way last year too. Mm -hmm. It's funny too. I felt like I was in on this like game show. I'm like, are we gonna make it? Are we gonna make it? Is this slide number 87? Like it really felt that way, but it was exciting. And you bring this element of excitement and in power to the speech that you give. And I know I'm aware that there's a chance that a few people are just not gonna be able to absorb a lot. I am fearful of that and I'm aware of that. And I try to explain really concisely what we're talking about and what you can do right now. And I try to give you guys time to try a few of the things that I'm talking about so it wasn't just like I just like hurled thoughts at you for an hour straight and then you leave just dumbfounded. Mm -hmm. Try to give people a chance to do something with it so I hope that helps absorb and stop for a minute and absorb because it is a breakneck pace. I'm aware. <laughs> it's kind of the fun part though too. Yeah. And I always give people a chance like any, a lot of people gave me their email address. And so the, mm. with the idea that I'll send you this slide deck afterwards and you can just go one at a time at your leisure and put these things into practice in case you had trouble grabbing anything while I was throwing things at you. But you said detailed notes. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that makes me feel a little better because I know some people probably were just like, uh. Mm -hmm. I have to say I'm extremely impressed with how much you covered and you did g give us those two interactive yeah. action item points. So... I even left the talk doing my own action items, oh, which, which is exactly what you want. That's you want to like learn a new behavior. Yeah, it is about sort of like establishing beneficial habits. Really, at the end of the day, we are creatures of habit. Mm -hmm. And so my main call to action was just take one of these things and adopt it. You know, mm -hmm. write it down, circle it, tell other people so they hold you accountable, mm -hmm. and just try to implement one to new behaviors, you know what I mean? And then you did receive a lot of other information, so if you feel comfortable, you can start incorporating more. Mm -hmm. That was the hope. So what are some of the main points that either of you remember that were different from last year, or maybe similar to last year, but you know, I'm dying to know, because I wasn't there, so fill me in. It was a totally new presentation. I went cool. from scratch. Because this was about audience engagement, which is a little different than just talking about social media, although obviously there's a ton of overlap. Mm -hmm. I have a hard time even probably paraphrasing the key things, but we definitely looked at data and how to find the humans under the data oh. in order to target your audience more specifically and better. And a lot of the times it's not the common denominators you would think. Mm -hmm. Like my audience is actually more interested maybe in comedy and political news, you know what I mean? And I can use that to my advantage when targeting people who already like my work to access people, new people that didn't know about my work but are likely to like it as well. That was a bit of a ramble. But we did some of that. What else did we do? Just to piggyback off of what you said, that was my biggest takeaway. It was building off of your point last year that audience engagement should be creating and continuing a conversation. Yeah. But what I got from it this time around was using these quantitative analytics to mm. find exactly where those conversation points are. Yeah. Wow. It was perfect. I took so many detailed notes. I really came away with so much knowledge and now a much better focus. I do have something else to say. So what I, I did actually ex access a lot of Tech, new technologies that we can use to engage our audiences. Mm -hmm. But before I did that, I made sure to spend a lot of time on, listen, we need to target our audience better and we need to message, speak directly to them. Mm -hmm. 
right? Which I find a lot of people kind of miss that point. Again, it's we, I know we've talked about it a lot, but I see it a lot. This sort of idea of grant jargon or really vague, obtuse language. You should come to my dance because we're gonna, you know, explore the human experience through movement. I'm like, isn't that just dance? What about this dance is worth it? What's in it for me? You know, I'm always asking that question. But I talked a lot about value and actually accessing a primal part of our brain that filters information. So we did brainstorm how... To, it's actually clinically called the reptile brain. It's the cerebellum and the brainstem. All of our information is processed through that first. And so your messaging has to disrupt and access that primal survival part of our brain. And then you can feed it a bunch of logic and information that they might benefit from. But if you don't do that, people will scroll right past you. So how are you going to get engagement? How, even if you use all these tools, if you don't message it properly, you still miss out. And I was trying to make that really clear because I think a lot of the times people... I felt like they were asking me when in the description Dance NYC wrote that talked a lot about new tech. Mm. And of course I do have some knowledge about that and I shared a lot of it, but I wanted to first talk about, no, 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 no. What can you do to increase engagement without even touching the tech? Mm -hmm. Understand that before you get into all the technologies and you'll benefit a lot more. Absolutely. What I love about that point is you're finding where humans interact with that technology and what that was definitely my second biggest takeaway because the question that Claire and I have always had is how do you get people to stop and focus on your post when we are so overwhelmed with everything? Totally. And you really hit the nail on the head in talking about you're in that part of your brain, the reptilian part of the brain, when you're just checking out on your phone and scrolling quickly Correct. past posts. I'm definitely there because I usually do it when I'm tired and I'm taking a break. Yeah. And so finding those entry points is so important for technology and I really got that from your presentation very well. So it should say, you will die, all caps, right, if you don't see this show. Well, Survivalist instinct taps you, in. You do, you, you're close. Okay, I'm going to use that right now. You don't mean... No, I forgot what I was going to say. I was, Sorry, but it, no, that <laughs> was, useless distractions. Oh, no, 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 no. Exhibit A is what it was. It's about, it is, in marketing they use this term a lot. It's ubiquitous in this industry. It's uh, disruption. You have to disrupt your audience, because we are skimming at best. Yep. And so there does need to be kind of, um, and what it is is like, I try to describe it, the reptilian brain, if you're reading a bunch of promotions of your, all your dance friends and they sound similar, mm-hmm. we're all kind of saying similar things, you know, mm-hmm. exploring the human experience through movement or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's basically your, your animalistic part of your brain removes that. It filters it out because it's not a threat. Mm-hmm. Meaning it's like your dance promotion was just another shrub that I walked by. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It wasn't. So admittedly, you do have to kind of be strategic. But I find the brainstorming of all of this animalistic survival stuff is really fun. It really opens up even your own understanding of your work. And sometimes you don't even get that until you have to try to explain it to someone else. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. So disruption is a key element. Yeah. And so you're not way off. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't necessarily. Well, unless you're you don't being like telling you a joke. Will die well, unless it's a, you know, unless you make Definitely it a joke. joke yeah. yeah. Well, I know you meant it as a yeah, but that's not. We weren't far from that, and I gave a couple examples where okay, they're pretty disruptive. It's, yeah. Yeah. but it it works. I'm trying to just explain things that work in my personal experience. Yeah. I even feel like something that says like this will make you laugh. Like for yes. seconds, that would be different for a dance, and so maybe that would appeal totally or just propositioning people 
Could you use a good laugh? Oh, yeah. Uh, who, let's just touch right on now. the political climate, <laughs> can't use a laugh. I could use a laugh at any moment of the day yeah, or any. even a cry. Yeah. Oh, my God, I like this. Who could use a cry? Yeah. Hey, how can we work If this your in? content taps into something that could make someone, you know, in a cathartic way cry, there's value in that. Yes. So why just say, give me the grant spiel where, well, we're gonna serve this many people in this neighborhood and that's why you should come and, no, yeah. we don't care. It's cool, I'm glad mm -hmm. that, you know, you're doing those things that get you grants because often it is very noble, the work that you do to get a grant. Yeah. But how can you explain that to a casual audience, potential audience goer? Yeah. And actually in the example that I put together when you gave us time to craft our own message. Mine was tired of Trump land or something like that. Yeah. I don't yeah. remember the exact look at this. And you with the knowing your data well, your audience data and targeting it well, you could go on Twitter and you could go, okay, I'm only focusing on Democratic voters. I'm going to exclude because you will get trolling. You can exclude also behaviors in demographics. So I can create an ad that only focuses on democratic people in a certain area, maybe a certain gender, if it's like a gender specific oh, yeah. point you're making. Mm -hmm. And I can exclude people that voted for Trump or yeah. Republican, you know, That's you can do that kind of targeting. And think about it, if you're really f specific, you're bound to get a little more engagement because you're speaking directly to a certain smaller niche group of people. Yeah. And I was trying to get that across. Yeah. yeah, you did. I'll have to share my notes with you. Yeah, 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 I would love to see them. And um, since I'm sure people listening are like, whoa, this sounds like a lot of specific data and other information that I could use. If somebody missed your talk at the symposium, but they're still curious, could they email you or do they have, uh, what are their options? Yeah, the so info? you can, well, I do have one more session at 3.30. Okay, so if you're listening well, it's not two live, weeks from now. But, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but after that, you can sign up for my free marketing advice list. Do a lot like of people. this, yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing to lose. It's just me giving you tips on occasion when I can. Cool. It's not the the release of that is pretty just whenever I feel <laughs> like it or have something easy to send. But I will break down some of these things um, and send them out via email. Plus, I already have like 10 lesson tip emails that because you haven't been on the list, you'll get, you know, mm. right away. So, I mean, that's one thing they can do. Very cool. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Once again, fabulous presentation and UNA for the best presentation effort. <laughs> Thank you very much. The Awards. I sh sure did put some work into it. Um, yeah. So hopefully it shows. Yes, and I should say, that's jamiebenson.com slash marketing dash tips if you want to sign up for that. Okay. Regardless, I'll be around. I got a big mouth and people keep asking <laughs> me to use it. Awesome. Must be so fun. <laughs> I have a lot of fun, yeah. Good. All right. All Thank right, you. Thanks. Thanks, ladies. <laughs>